Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's the history of the Tottenham. It's the history of the Tottenham. It's the history of the Tottenham. They miss always something. They, they concede many, many chances every, every game. Many chances every, every game. It's the history of the Tottenham. 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 It's the history of the Tottenham. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, good evening to you. Good evening to you too. Good How evening. you doing, Andrew? I'm okay. I, I turned on the the last couple of minutes of the Carabao Cup final. I, you know, I've got much better things to do with my time and my life than watch Tottenham in any way, shape, or form. Right? Of course. But I just finished a game of Rocket League, and I yeah. said, uh, I'll just turn on the end of the game and see what's happening. Because I was checking Twitter to see what was happening, and, and there hadn't been a goal. And I just as I turned the TV on to the football, they were celebrating. I could see Man, Man City fans actually celebrating in the, in the stands at Wembley, and they just scored. So I watched the last few minutes, and... Uh, well, I mean, you take your laughs where you can get them these days, if you're an Arsenal fan, right? <laughs> yeah, you saw the satisfying sight of young min son uh, weeping mm. at the final whistle. Yes, I mean... I enjoyed your tweet, like by it. the way. Oh, Cheers, son's crying. Yeah. Very funny. Uh, I, 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 the minute I saw him, I was like, oh, fuck, i got to get this out, because like, yeah. <laughs> 4,000 million people will be doing the exact same tweet if they get it out before me. So I hope I was first. I don't know. But look, you know, it was an obvious one. It was a, it was an, uh, a, a, what, what do you call that, tap-in. You know, couldn't miss. Couldn't miss. Yeah. 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 Uh, I- I enjoyed Tom Rosenthal, who is a big Arsenal fan, the actor. He he tweeted saying, um, Spurs, people aren't talking enough about the fact that Spurs hired a cup specialist trophy winning manager and then sacked him a week before a final. Uh, that is quite an extraordinary mess, isn't it, to have got into that position? I know. I mean, look, it's it's... Every time you think they can't be more Spursy than they already are, they they find a way. They find a way. It's restored a little of my faith in football, I'll be honest, you know. <laughs> my opinion on the sport, it, it's been a tough week for all of us. It has. I think football needed that, really did. Yeah, it has been a crazy week. I mean, um, I was saying to someone the other day that, you know, it felt like about seven months long last week because so much happened and so much was going on and so much was changing, you know, not even day to day, but hour to hour, you know, all, uh, all through the week. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, we had that game of football that we're going to discuss now in a minute. And, you know, uh, just what what were your broad thoughts on the week that was I know it's very difficult probably to do that without going into specifics like what do you think of this, what do you think of that, but were you left exhausted at the end of the week? 
Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And kind of, um, I mean that on every count. I mean, emotionally, there was a lot of a, it was a big roller coaster. Um, professionally, it was quite a draining period, constantly mm. trying to find out what was going on. And yeah, I felt completely exhausted by it. And then, of course, it all culminated in Friday evening, the protest that happened mm. outside the ground. By the time I actually got into the stadium and the game kicked off, I was pretty much spent. It was one of those where I almost feel bad saying this because I know there are people who would kill to be in a stadium at the moment, but it was difficult. It was quite difficult to focus, actually, on the match, given the wider context and everything we have experienced this week. Um, yeah, it's been crazy. And I, I actually feel... Pr- <laughs> setting the Everton match aside, pretty good about the outcome in terms of, I think that, you know, Arsenal aren't in the Super League, the Super League's not happening. There seems to have been a real kind of rallying round of the Arsenal fans and a a greater sense of unity and purpose Mm. and unity of purpose than there has been maybe for some time. Um, So overall, I feel positive, I think. But the the football and the match in particular um, was a significant dent in that feeling. Right, okay, so... I suppose we should, given that we are nominally a football podcast, talk about the football first. And yeah, like the, yeah. the, the Super League thing, uh, you know, it, it's been done to death and it is a dead thing. But obviously the repercussions of what happened uh, rumble on. And we saw that on Friday with the protests. And, and that's something that we're going to have to talk about. So we'll do that. But, uh, you know, this this team's ability, James, to lose games that it should not lose is a problem, big problem now, right? Because mm. I don't think we were particularly good against Everton. I know we were missing some key players and everything else, uh, but we weren't under any real threat in the game. I thought the only danger to ourselves was ourselves, and, and so it proved not quite in the way that I thought or envisaged. I was on the live blog, I was going, Everton have been so bad in this, I was typing this out, Everton have been so bad in this half, their goal is really going to... And then they... <laughs> I, didn't then even get the ch- I didn't even get the chance to finish the thought. So, you know... In terms of the performance, look, we could go over the nuts and bolts of it, I guess, but it's just this this self-destruct button went off again. Yeah, and and I I was actually thinking after the game, I mean, Arsenal do keep finding ways to not win matches, and an interesting thing has kind of happened, hasn't it, in football analysis, particularly among, you know, your own team, where I, I think we're inclined to look at process we're inclined to look at performances you know I think we're, we're not necessarily as geared around analyzing the results as perhaps we once were but I think a consequence of that is that maybe maybe sometimes we don't look enough at the results and sometimes when you lose a match like this and you step back and you think how many Premier League games have we lost this season 13 from 33 it really is troubling and I think even Mikel Arteta's staunchest supporters would have to say he doesn't win enough games currently in the Premier League. He just doesn't. Um, and I don't think it's that Arsenal are awful in these matches. You know, they say the mark of a, a good team is that they win when they're not playing well. Well, mm. what does it say about our team that we that we often don't win and when don't- we're sort of... Well, yeah. we don't play well either, but even when it's sort of not necessarily a bad day by our own standards, we can lose without playing badly. Let's yeah. put it like that. Yeah, that's it. Our ability to lose a game or drop points 
when you know we really shouldn't be and there are many games this season that you could talk about and certainly the one against Everton was was one of them like it's not as if we had Jordan Pickford diving from pillar to post and making all kinds of saves and and playing attacking uh, no. threatening football but I thought we were on top in the second half um yeah. I, I mean not- in the first half they had chances you know they hit, yeah, the, bar, they hit the bar so for the free kick and Leno made a, a decent save at one point oh that was the um, shot that deflected off holding yes I think. Yeah. exactly um but in the second half you're right it was kind of one-way traffic and we do keep finding ways to lose and it's difficult this because if it was happening every so often you'd go oh well that you know Mm. that happens every Arsenal are doing everything right every so often you don't get the luck you don't get the breaks but it's a real pattern I think at this point yeah it is and I think it's all I think it's not unreasonable to say that we are a team that that don't get any breaks at the moment if there's any luck going it's Mm. bad luck and I think that's true but it's also it's also combined with uh, you know uh, the inability to create enough chances to offset, as we said before. Like when mistakes happen, when you do the shooting yourself in the foot thing, you have some wiggle room if you can score goals. And we're a team that doesn't score anywhere near enough goals. I was listening to um, Arsenal, the Arsenal Vision uh, Instant Reaction podcast uh, mm-hmm. yesterday, and Tim was saying that it's what's 17 goals in 18 home games or 18 goals in 17 home games, whatever it is. I think we've conceded one more than we've scored. You know, so we've and there's a negative goal difference. Yeah, and there's a tweet here from uh, <laughs> the purveyor of doom stats, uh, you know, which are also just facts. Uh, Orbino, uh, Arsenal have failed to score in 12 Premier League games this season, the most ever in a 38-game season for the Gunners in the in the competition. And... You know, there's still some games to go in which we may not score as well. So, yeah, you know, I mean, listen, we, in this game, as I say, you could in isolation go, well, you know, without Lacazette, without Aubameyang, they're missing key attacking personnel. But it's clear from these stats and the conversation we're having, this is a recurrent theme. Um, and your point about luck is a really interesting one. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not a great subscriber to kind of things being fated or even kind of sort of refereeing conspiracies or anything like that. But, and maybe I'll take pelters for this because I know people think that I'm sort of, you know, protective of Mikel Arteta, which isn't really the case at all. I just, I do think he does seem to be quite an unlucky guy as a manager. And actually, maybe, like, maybe that is a thing. Like, maybe it really matters to get the breaks and it feels Mm. like... He doesn't? Well, look, I, I, he's had so much to contend with in the 18 months or whatever it is that he's been manager coming up I on 18 that. months. You know. Yeah, in my assessment of yeah. that. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the, the list of obstacles and problems that he's faced, and then you look at kind of the errors and the uh, refereeing decisions and the VAR decisions mm. and things like that. He must, you know, he, he must have run over a few black cats or something in his time smashed a few mirrors I don't know I know and then we come back to the same story about how well you know you you make your own luck and all that kind of stuff you know Um, true 
the 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 was it Carrie Player quote that we did a couple of weeks ago. The more I practice, the luckier I get. You know, and and there's yep. there's some truth to that too. In that, like, if we were having all these things go against us, but we were able to score you know, a couple of goals a game on average. You know, we'd be in a much better position right now. It's not to say we would have won every game. Some of the decisions would still have gone against us. We would have dropped points along the way, but not as many. Um, Mm. So it comes back to, I think this is now a a hallmark of of Arteta's management in as much as we can... um, make judgments on it in in a short period of time and we only have arsenal to go on we don't have his managerial career anywhere else to say well this is this is not who he is or this is not what he does but you know this inability to score goals we're a shot shy team a creation mm-hmm. shy team and a goal shy team and after you know a, a fairly reasonable period in charge having had some moments along the way where we've thought, okay, we've cracked it. This is what we want to do. This is how we're going to do it, et cetera, et cetera. We kind of revert to the mean, you know, to, to who we are at the core of us under Mikel Arteta. And it, it it's a it's a problem that he is going to have to get on top of very quickly. Otherwise, I think he's he's going to be in in big trouble if he's not already you know and i know he is for some people but you know i'm i'm talking about the, the the view the club might have as opposed to the view that sections of the fan base who are far from convinced already have yeah that's it and i think ultimately that's kind of what i mean about maybe we don't talk about results enough at times i, I do think since you have to step back and look at it starkly um you know if you if you really go into every game you can kind of find a narrative within each game of you know why it went wrong and why there's an explanation mm. but ultimately if you're not winning it's a big 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 problem yeah. and i mean something's been true of this arsenal team pretty much since arsene wenger left is that it's felt like games have hinged on narrow margins right and I just think that speaks to the fact that we are I heard uh, Clive on Twitter described it as a pack we're part of a pack of teams where the games are kind of very close you know we don't do enough to separate ourselves from that pack you know we're not Mm. doing what Man City are doing we're not doing what even the likes of Liverpool and people like West Ham are doing in terms of sort of you know chances they're creating versus chances they're conceding our games are kind of close enough that Mm. if a call does go against you it's probably costing you three points as it did on Friday and you know that's that's the trouble we're a long way away from being a dominant team and and that ultimately does have to be the manager's responsibility It's, it's it's a maybe it's just because Thursday is looming and I think everyone's mindful of what a big tie that is for Mm. Mikel Arteta but it does feel like um and maybe it's just because everyone's very pissed off about everything that went on in the week with the club more generally. But it does feel like uh, there's been a, a slight swing in his popularity, shall we say, this week. Yeah, downturn, uh, I guess. Yeah. Um, look, let's talk about the two big moments in the, the second half. I think the first one, I would deal, deal with them chronologically because, uh, you know, I, I think it is important. Um, the penalty decision and then the subsequent overturning of that decision. Mm. Um, You know, when we talk about luck and, you know, not getting things going for you, 
Look, I I just want to be clear. I am not blaming VAR for our result on Friday night. I'm not blaming VAR for our results this season, our performance, uh, anything. Um, but it's really, really difficult not to be hugely frustrated by uh, by the way it is being used, um, the the sort of fiddly bollockery that it comes up with to find any reason whatsoever to deny a goal or to chalk off a goal-scoring opportunity or a goal itself. Um, like, it's ludicrous, isn't it, that that, that decision should be given. Um, nobody in their right mind would even have noticed that. If, they, if, if it was a normal game with no VAR and that penalty was given... Everton fans, and I think quite rightly, uh, could have been complaining about how soft the the decision was to award a penalty for that kick, right? Yeah. Um, we spoke Definitely. about it. Yeah, we, I would say so. We spoke about it after the Fulham game, and I thought that was a very, very soft penalty. But, you know, if that uh, the Fulham one is a penalty, then why shouldn't we get a penalty for something the exact same? But I think Everton fans yeah. would have been well within their rights to complain about that being soft. It's the classic, well, there's contact, but contact, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We've fucking done this to death a thousand times. But nobody, nobody, nobody in the world would have said, well, the reason this goal or this goal-scoring opportunity should be disallowed is because... 15 seconds previously, Nicolas Pepe's elbow appeared to be offside in the build-up. Nobody would have said that. So what is VAR doing to the game? It's just, it's just nonsense. No, and I have to be... I'm pretty consistent in that I don't even really like it when it goes for us. I just think that some of the decisions are completely absurd and arbitrary it really feels arbitrary with this line yeah. drawing and and dale uh johnson who is the kind of var czar on twitter <laughs> he um pointed out that one of the major issues here is the inconsistency because there's no clear guidance on whether or not those lines get drawn so some video assistant referees will decide that offside is actually so close that if we draw the lines, it will be problematic and we shouldn't do mm. it. So he made the case that with a different VAR, a different video assistant referee, we probably never reach that point. It's at their discretion whether they do it or not. When they do it, it's such a flawed system because mm. A, you've got the lines which are working off imperfect camera angles, which are not, it's not technology created for that purpose. You know, it's they're working from TV cameras to try and find out a solution. Uh, then that you've got the fact that you have to you're literally using a frame of the film, but mm. is that the perfect frame where the ball actually leaves the foot? I mean, that aspect of it gets completely overlooked often. In yeah, the discussion. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's just so much, and and then like you say, it's like well, they they seem to be trying to draw it from the shoulder but half the time it looks like it's their elbow how are they being absolutely certain about that mm. if you're going to be as exact as about the line the line itself needs to be accurate and a mm. reflection of that kind of objectivity i think it's really appallingly applied um i think arsenal pff, uh, listen 
in my book, that shouldn't be a penalty what happened to Danny Ceballos. But given what happened to us the previous week, I agree with you. If you want consistency, it probably is. But yeah, the offside thing's just ludicrous. Mm. And the fact that no Everton player appeals or even looks to the linesman, you know what I mean, at that point in the game, that's the spirit of the law, right? There's no yeah. advantage being gained there. It's not sort of cheating it's not like he's standing five yards offside and pulling the defensive line out of shape it's it's yes. ludicrous it's like the Saka one you know the other week where yeah, exactly. his toe was offside and it's just I know it, people will say letter of the law but the, this particular law is a fucking ass um, yeah well look there you go and, and that you know, in a game like that against Everton, um, I, I think Pepe's a good penalty taker. I think we probably go 1-0 up. Um, yeah. and He'd already scored in my mind. I was yeah. like, that's it. He'll put that and away. There's, you know, there is, the, there is the break that sometimes you need, or very often you need if you're Arsenal, uh, in fairness. And we didn't get it and couldn't, uh, couldn't find a goal. And then, and then their goal happens. Um, yeah. Look, I know Granite Xhaka got roasted, um, but it's basically in the, what, four or five games that he's played at left-back, the first time I've seen any any attacker go beyond him like that. You know, he committed himself to a tackle and Richarlison skipped past yeah. him. But There was one moment in the first half that was similar. I mean, Richarlison obviously, you know, he fancied that flank, which is kind mm. of fair enough, but I'm with you, you know, if you've got Granit Xhaka in at left back, you know that that's a risk, right? You yeah. know that every so often he is going to get caught because he's not a left back and he's not the quickest bloke. Yeah. But <laughs> it shouldn't be disaster necessarily for a guy to get to the byline. I mean, you know, what happens from then on, it's a huge, huge error from Ben Leno. It's, yeah, it's massive because it's not... It's worst, even. I would say. Would you? I can't remember quite one quite as bad as that. No, it's by far the his worst moment in an Arsenal yeah. shirt. I know there was... I know there was a stat doing the rounds, maybe in his first season or his second season, that he had made X amount of errors leading to a goal more than any other goalkeeper. And I, I you know... It didn't really tally with what what I was seeing because you know he's a good shot stopper. Usually he's he's saved our bacon on many occasions, but this felt like something that had been in the post for a little while with Bernd Leno, didn't it? Because I think his form has been patchy. There have been a couple of goals that have gone in where if he's not a hundred percent at fault, he's not necessarily convincing with a couple of the saves uh, that he could have made, and. Uh, you know, this was like if Richarlison had absolutely leathered that ball across, like if he'd whacked it across and it had skidded between the goalkeeper's legs, you can sort of say it's still a mistake, but I, I understand how it happened. Yeah. I've watched this one so many times. I just do not understand. Well, he took his eye off the ball, lack of concentration. Maybe he was looking up to see, you know, who he could throw it to quickly, whatever it is. It's an, absolute howler from from Leno and I think it it places it places Mikel Arteta or gives him a bit of a conundrum um about what to do next you know yeah he's in a rut for sure he's in bad form and mm. I think it goes back quite a few weeks now um and I think some people would say well there's a few chickens coming home to roost mm. I think people have had their doubts about Leno a little bit um 
I happen to think he's a, he's just in a bad vein of form, and I think that can happen with a goalkeeper. It's just slightly surprising, you know. We've, we did see errors from him in his first season. I remember one against Chelsea where he sort of palmed a ball out and they scored the rebound. But that was, was last he, season, wasn't it? Was, was that, that last, last season? season? Yeah, the game we were winning was one of Arteta's first games, was it? Yes, sorry, you're right. It was his first home game, mm. I believe. Um, and what has always been striking about him is how well he's recovered from them. You know, that he has made mistakes, but he seemed like an incredibly mentally strong Mm. and stable guy who invariably would then in the next game have an absolute stormer and you almost forget about it. And I think what's troubling is that he's now putting together a bit of a run of errors. Yeah. Um, Stretches back to some of that bad footwork, but they've also been, I mean, you know, this goal had shades of maybe one that he conceded at West Ham in terms of getting beaten early at the, at the near post in that fashion. Um, this was obviously worse, more egregious. Manuel uh, yeah, Almunia you, was... Shades looking, of Almunia. Looking, he was looking, looking down, down from on high. with a fine glass of Rioja. Yeah. <laughs> Smiling on from the roof of the Emirates Stadium. Now, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I know exactly what you mean about... Um, what happens next? I yeah, mean, it, let's it, it, let's park that though because I've got okay. questions for part two. So we'll we'll come back to that. But it is you know it is a huge error and you know ultimately one that that, that cost us the game. Um, we had VAR again, by the way. We got the wrong. We were the wrong side of the arbitrary line once yeah, more. Yeah, exactly. It was a millimeter the the right way for from Everton's point of view. I mean, I was looking at the replay and I was going, oh please, you know, this could save our bacon here. And I looked at the replay first time and I was like, how could they possibly give that offside? I know they just mm. gave our one offside, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just. When you chuck it in your own net, you can't have too many grievances. Do you know what I mean? No, no. Um, and even there, you know, that goes back to maybe some of the bad luck that, uh, if you want to ascribe that to bad luck, but certainly from a manager's perspective, you know, whatever you, whatever your failings in terms of how your team performs or how proficient they are going forward, how many chances they create, et cetera, et cetera, you, you know, that's, that's out of your hands. Unless your goalkeeper is doing that every week and you keep picking him, then it's your problem. But, you know, a manager can't legislate for an experienced goalkeeper like Bernd Leno doing something like that. No, I think you're right about that. I do think you could maybe ask question more broadly of the club, you know, in terms of they let Emi Martinez go for a lot of money. In the summer, they didn't properly address the number two position. I don't know. I think maybe the management of the goalkeeper area, if they brought in a really credible number two in August, you know, who was sort of pushing Leno all season or who was a really uh, competent, confident alternative, um, maybe someone... I don't know. I mean, we can discuss, we will discuss whether or not Matt Ryan is those things. But, you know, if they had brought in uh, another guy with Martin's kind of stature, probably unrealistic, but maybe um, it changes the situation. But, you know, that, mm. let's not relitigate all that. But I think it is worth mentioning. Mm. I, 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 yeah, I, it was a, a huge, huge, huge mistake. Mm. Um, one we couldn't put right either in terms of, no. you know, finding an equaliser or, or finding, a, you know, finding a, a goal to save something from the game the way that we did against Fulham. Um, I mean, we had three attempts on goal uh, after 
after they had uh, scored. Yeah. You know, there was a Martinelli one, I think, and yeah, Danny Sabayos, Thomas maybe. Partey. Yeah. Um, what did you make? I mean, more broadly, just of the of the attack. I mean, we talked about maybe not creating enough. What were you surprised that he went for Eddie and Ketia say over Gabriel Martinelli as the centre forward? I wasn't necessarily surprised. Um, but maybe a little bit disappointed. Maybe a little bit disappointed. And I don't think Eddie and Kedia had a bad game, really. There were a couple of moments no. where it might have fallen for him. I thought he put himself about well. He was tidy on the ball. He did some of that dropping deep that Lacazette does. And um, he had scored, of course, in the previous game. Yeah, you know, but I, 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 think, I think what's clear with... Like, I reckon if you put Eddie Nketiah into Man City's team, he'd score a lot of goals because they create the chances that he would like to took away. You know what I mean? Mm, I, mm. I just think that in a team which really struggles to create on a consistent basis, when you play a striker like Eddie Nketiah who needs structure around him to be effective as a goal scorer... Mm-hmm. I just don't know that we have that. Um, not not on any consistent level. And I think if, and this is probably something we'll talk about a bit later on as well, but if Aubameyang is not available for Thursday, even though I think he probably will be, but if he's not, I would rather see Gabriel Martinelli start up front than Eddie Nketiah. Um, you know, it, again, it's not because I thought Nketiah was bad, I just think that this team needs, and maybe it goes against everything that Mikel Arteta wants, but it needs a little bit of maverick energy, if we can Mm. call it that. Somebody who can do something unexpected. Like Eddie won't do anything unexpected. He'll get no, in no. positions. If you give him a chance, he'll, you know, he'll tuck it away from three yards out because that's where he scores his goals. But beyond that, he's not curling one in from outside the box. You know, he's not going to do what Martinelli did when he had that chance laid on. You know, the the sort of burst of pace in the penalty area and the, the ability to get a shot off when I didn't think no. it was there for him to do it. He's not going to do not that. Dribble. Yeah, and that's not to be critical of him. That's just who he is. But I think, yeah, I think, um, look, there's nothing we can do about Everton now, but I I would prefer Martinelli in the future. And I think as well, maybe there was an element of uh, Nketiah, he'd scored, reminded people he was around, and this was maybe a little bit of a shop window selection as well. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was because from, you know, if you're thinking purely about Arsenal's future mm. uh, and the development of the player, I mean, Martinelli is kind of the obvious choice. And I, I actually thought he would play Martinelli. I know Arteta likes Arteta, uh, Arteta likes uh, Nketiah and has picked him plenty, but... Well, not in the uh, last... Not of late. Not in the last four yeah. months he hasn't, you know, so no. he's thrown and, and, a guy and, in pretty cold as well. Yes, very true. And I thought just generally things didn't quite click um, in the final third, maybe as much as they have in previous games. I mean, there there were some big players missing from this performance. And I do think we have to kind of wrap all our conversation about some of these recent performances within, around, you know, in that mm. a little bit. People like uh, even Odegaard, who 
you know, was instrumental until he got injured. Um, Bamiang, Lacazette, obviously, Kiratini as well is worth mentioning. Um, so there were key personnel absent, and I think that is affecting us. It's just mm. difficult because we're at a really crunch period of the season now. Um, yeah. And we're struggling for rhythm. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it's, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, maybe all the focus is on the the Europa League and that's understandable and that can happen to teams it really can that they do even if they you know as much as the manager wants to prepare them for the next game um, yeah, yeah. when subconsciously you realise this this game doesn't matter all that much it can have an impact it can have an impact but of course that's a consequence of us not being higher up the table that this mm. game doesn't matter. That's our problem. That's our fault. That's what we've done. It's not because the game itself doesn't matter. It's that we've been so bad that the game lacked the kind of importance that it should have at this stage of a season. You know, a home game against Everton, a home game against Fulham. These are games that you, you should be winning because you, you ought to be, at the very least, you know, pushing for um, securing your place in the top six and then, you know, top four and, and everything else. So that's our problem, that these games and the, the, the focus is, is elsewhere. But I understand why it is, you know. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and I think the reason it feels dispiriting, by the way, is that, you know, the, the league tables never really uh, kidded us on this season. It's not like we were riding high um, and exceeding expectations. Mm. It's kind of always said to us, yeah, you're going to be, you're, you're somewhere in the middle. But I think as fans, it's in our, it's our instinct to kind of always see the way out, to always mm. be like, but if we put a run together, you know, if we yeah, can yeah, just yeah, win, if, yeah, yeah, yeah. we've yeah. got, a, you know, uh, we've got a, a five game run coming up. If we could take 13 from 15 and, and, and mm. as the season gets on and you play more games, the prospect of that happening <laughs> becomes slimmer and slimmer. So I think what, you know, when we talk about the, the stock of the manager declining and people feeling pretty fed up about the way the team are playing, I think it's, Personally, I think it's partly down to kind of our, the horizon is coming into view now and we're like, oh, it is just sort of what it looked like all along. Yeah. The, the opportunity to escape our fate uh, is slim now. It is, it is, it is mm. as we said, basically the Europa League. And still, what an opportunity. I mean, you know, what a prize, yeah, potentially. Sure. Sure, but, and like um, even even the people who would say the Europa League is all that matters right now, it doesn't mean you can take losing the way we lost to Everton and drawing the way we drew with Fulham. You can't just take that lying down. You don't just say, well, fuck it. You can't, especially in the overall context of this season where, you know, we've lost 13 games, um, yeah, failed to score this- in 12 of them. You know, that that is, um, whether you think there's been improvement since Christmas or Boxing Day or whatever, that's just part of the big picture. The big picture and, and the overall picture is the season as a whole. And that's how you make your assessment. Absolutely. And I mean, I still remember and think about when Arsenal finished 12th in, was it 95, something like that. And at, at the end of the day, after 38 games, you will get a league position and that will be history, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On, on every graph of Arsenal's standing in English football that is plotted forever, where we end up after 38 games will be there. And we can't, <laughs> it'll never have an asterisk. That's by exactly it. It's like, like Arsenal, uh, the Premier League table, Arsenal 11. Yeah, they weren't really trying because yeah, yeah. Europa League was there. Yeah. Or in brackets, but... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. 
However, oh, they got as far as the Europa League semi-finals, where they went out seven <laughs> 0 on aggregate to uh, Unai Emery's team. Okay. No, but I, uh, yeah, it's exactly that, and I think um, yeah, I think we're just sort of coming to terms with the the unfortunate reality that that run that we have always said, well, if we could just do this, we could just do that, it, it's probably never coming. No. No, there's been no evidence this season that we could do um, anything like that. In fairness, it was it was no. uh, us looking at things with our glasses half full, you know, um, as you know, more than half full, probably three quarters full, probably overflowing. If I'm going to completely Alan Partridge this uh, analogy, you know, <laughs> it you know it is that though. But when you look at the results and you look at the the run in the in the Premier League, I mean, have we had three wins in a row at all in the Premier League this season? Uh, uh, I have a feeling we haven't, but let's actually should we have a look? I'm just having um, a look. Yeah, uh, Chelsea, Brighton, and West Brom. So that that turn of the year when it felt like we had turned some sort of corner. That is the I only mean, time this season that we have won three Premier League games in a row. We've won, right. yeah. And if you look at the Premier League table, um, Brighton and West Brom's positions aren't too clever. Do you know what I mean? No. So it's not it's not uh, the kind of run to get too excited about. I mean, yeah. look, we all did, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, it, it, the results are pretty mm. dismal. They, are. they really are. They are. Um, hey. Hey, look, it is all about Europa League. It is all about Thursday, and that's something that we can talk about uh, a little later in the week. We will be doing, of course, a preview podcast for the uh, Villarreal game on Thursday. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what happened before the game. I mean, everyone knows at this point why it happened. So do we need to go over the the why or the you know the, the build up or, or everything that went on no, in the week? I don't I think, think people yeah saturated with that, aren't they? I think so. Yeah, I mean we did enough um, you know in, in podcast terms last week. I think we covered all the angles on it. So I don't think we need to go over that again. But you were there obviously uh, before mm-hmm. the game. I saw your video. Um, what was your sense of of you know the atmosphere? Um, the mood, I guess, and and the what what the what the turnout showed, um, because it was in. I mean, look, part of me is a little bit like squicked out by it from the mm-hmm. pandemic sense. Yeah, I, it made me just. It made me personally feel uncomfortable in the sense that I would not have liked to have been there you know, in the middle of that, in these current circumstances. I'm not saying, I'm not casting any judgments on anyone who was there. I fully support the protests and and everything else. But just, you know, personally, it just made me feel a little bit uncomfortable from the the pandemic point of view. I mean, so with feet on the ground and eyes on the scene and everything else, what, what did you make of it all? I had that feeling as well because I've lived, you know, pretty carefully uh, for more than a year. So there was a kind of inherent caution in me but i think you could if you was if you wanted to be sensible you could be you know what i mean like yeah. you could take the right precautions keep your distance keep your mask on i'm not going to sit here and tell you everybody was doing that um but you know mm. if you wanted to you absolutely could being there the atmosphere was great i think the turnout is obviously partly about everything that's gone on gone on this week and how strongly people feel about that i think it is also a little bit of a 
you know, we're, we're, we're at a time in England now where, rightly or wrongly, people feel that we are the other side of the mountain in terms of the pandemic. And there's a real desperation and an urge to feel that sense of community. And mm. I think that fed into the turnout. Yeah. I think people wanted to be part of a group, wanted to be part of something. And I, I can't lie to you, it was very exciting to see and witness and hear that. And football fans you know, there's always going to be that kind of black humour attached to it, which I think there was a lot of that. But also it was very good natured and the police um, seemed to handle everything pretty well from what I could tell. The other emergency services were down there, the ambulances, it was all pretty, uh, there was good rapport with everybody. And I think it was just a powerful statement, really. I mean, the rest of the football world was watching. Mm. You know, every other Premier League team, there were some fans from other Premier League teams there, I should say. I saw United fans, Liverpool fans, I saw a Leicester fan. But every other Premier League team was watching the coverage of that. And I had a lot of messages, actually, from people in football or just fans saying how excited and grateful mm. they were to see, you know, supporters taking a stand in this way. Um so it felt brilliant to be part of it. And I mean, look, you've seen all the pictures, you've seen all the original funny signs people came up with. Yeah, yeah. You know, Some the, way, yeah the way in which fan culture kind of expresses itself um, is great. And I just thought it made me uh, yearn for normality and getting yeah. those fans back in the stadium too. That was the overriding thing. I think, you know, we've really learned this year how important... Um, supporters are to the game and certainly to my enjoyment of the game as a live spectacle and I really thought you know this is what we've it, been missing and, and how sorry, was it can I ask go. you I was just going to ask you because to me it looked quite there was something uh it was like a cup final or something outside in terms of you know the atmosphere and the way people were there maybe it's because we're just yeah. not used to it so what was it like you know somebody who's been lucky enough to go to games this season and work at games you know, normally you're ambling in and there's always people around the stadium and stuff like that, but never uh, in the last year in those kind of numbers. So you're used to going in to an empty stadium, working in an empty stadium, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So what was it like leaving that thronging mass of, of Arsenal fans, Arsenal community, as you say, all together uh, to protest against the owners and and maybe we'll <laughs> yeah. we'll have some more broad questions on on that in part two but to sort of go from something that we associate so easily with football is mm. the, you know the crowd the noise the singing the jokes the all of it people shoulder to shoulder all of that kind of stuff and then going into an empty stadium because you could hear some of it outside on the yeah, tv it was surreal. you know it was surreal. It was a bit of a come down, as you can imagine. It yeah. was kind of like, uh, it really did feel more empty than ever, that stadium. And, you know, even around the kind of outside of it, you know how they have banners from fans um, mm. that are designed and that kind of hang all around. I don't know what you would call it, but they hang around sort of the stands, essentially. And um, a good few of them had been taken down because... Arsenal fans had followed Liverpool's lead and a lot of them had asked for their, yeah. their banners to be removed. And that added again to that kind of slightly surreal feeling of emptiness. And actually there was a moment I nipped out during the first half into the kind of exterior concourse bit where you've got, you know, the sort of, you'd ordinarily have like the burger stands and drink yeah. stands. And 
And obviously it's completely empty. It's just sort of grey concrete. But at that point, the police, I think, had moved the fans away from the club shop and they were all walking around the exterior of the stadium. So you were in this empty, hollow, echoing corridor, but you could hear the fans, the other side of the turnstiles, singing songs and chanting and, you know, laughing. And it was this very odd Mm. contrast of this, you know, cold, hollow, empty stadium and really the life and soul of football being just outside it. Uh, It was a real contrast and you really felt it more plainly than ever. And actually, I think in the little bits and pieces I've picked up from what Mikel Arteta said about it all in press conferences... I sense that his biggest frustration, and it's probably it's one of mine, certainly, is that Arsenal fans coming back to the Emirates Stadium should have been such a wholly joyous occasion yeah. and event. And it should have been so about togetherness and unity. And obviously, everything that's gone on in the past seven days or so has really damaged and compromise that. Mm. And it's such a shame. And it, it, the fans are absolutely right, by the way, to protest. But it's such a shame that something that should have been really about positivity and togetherness, and it was still about that from a supporters perspective, but it should have been about the whole club, will never quite have that now, I don't think. And when the fans come back in the stadium, I'm sure the anger and the dissent that we saw on mm. Friday will, will still be there. That is an interesting way to look at it all right I mean I suppose you would say that it is a positive thing that that fans are together yes. and they're united and they they you know I don't think necessarily that the the Super League this was a pro, this was a protest against Stan against KSE but it was not simply because of our involvement in the Europa or in the Super League, right? No, I mean, I, that was I, over by this point. Yeah, you know, it was, okay, fans wanted to make clear their objection to it and, and the, the sense that this had been damaging to the club and to the reputation of the club and our involvement was, was an embarrassment and it was shameful and all of those kind of things. But this has sort of been a long time in the in in the process i think hasn't it that you know there have been sporadic anti-cronky and kse protests um there were Uh, go on yeah i was just gonna say yes you're right this would always have come to the surface sooner or later because there's always been that sentiment underlying all i mean and and it is absolutely positive that there is that yeah 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 um no i know uh, what you mean like you were saying that like the return of the fans should be the gates are open everybody floods back in we can watch our team again and this is a happy moment for for everybody it's not to say an amnesty you know like there should have been the owners and the club shot themselves in the foot because they would have been afforded i think a bit of an amnesty such would have been the excitement for everyone to be back together but the the nature of what they've done um mm. has killed that for them um and, and you know it, i'm really fascinated to see i think the supporters will still absolutely be behind the team and we will still see um a bit of a lift there when we get the fans back but uh yeah, it, it's just interesting, isn't it? It's kind of not how... It, it it was great, but it was also not how I imagined it the first time you get a couple of thousand Arsenal fans together. Mm. What do you think will the reaction be from the ownership? 
from KSC. I mean, yeah. It's so hard to to. It's so hard to know, isn't it? Uh, you know, Josh Kroenke. Whether you take what he said at face value or otherwise, did appear at this uh, fans forum meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure that any of the other owners. Um, have graced their own fans with an appearance, albeit on Zoom or whatever. So, you know, I just I just don't quite know what to make of it in the sense that it's hard for me to to like I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt to an extent after the We Care Do You thing and he came out and he spoke and he was more communicative mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. of that kind of stuff and you think well maybe maybe like a little corner has been turned they've been their eyes have been fully opened to the sentiment that the fans have and from there they can build an uneasy truce a rickety bridge whatever you want to fucking call it but like here's what here's what we said and you responded and that's like if not quite an olive branch right it's i don't quite know how how to explain this i just sort of had some hope yeah that no, they would I, have learned from that a bit but here we are whatever it is like nearly 2 years on from the we care do you thing and Josh is in the thing in the meeting saying yes uh, we never had any trust we know we never had any trust but why haven't you ever why don't you do anything about that you know well I, yeah I, I think uh, what he actually said I think uh, is that he said the little bit of trust has that been we shredded. might have yeah that yeah. he'd started to win back and I know for some people they absolutely have always hated everything about Stan Kroenke and KSC and their ownership of the club. And that's perfectly, I mean, they'll feel very vindicated in that opinion right now. But I do think that you could have constructed a case that uh, after they took sole ownership in 2018, you know, there had been the kind of coming together of the weekend. Do you think there were a couple of other little things that made you think, okay, we don't know the terms, but they have refinanced the stadium debt. You know, we don't know the terms, but we somehow 50 million euros for Thomas Party turned up, right? Mm. So there were enough things that made you think maybe, maybe we're getting somewhere. And I actually thought that was the most powerful, you know, um, I don't know if powerful is the right word, but the most telling maybe moment of everything Josh Cronky said in that fans forum the recognition that any goodwill that they had managed to construct, they have shredded. I mean, they are back at, not at zero, they are back in a minus at Mm. this point by a big way. And like, how stupid, how how frustrating and how foolish, you know, to, to, they had such an uphill climb and the fact they made any ground at all took probably quite a lot of work and probably quite a lot of money and they've chucked it away. Mm. I, 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 it is kind of extraordinary and um, it's really hard. You know, it was great, the protest. And, and I was lucky in that, like, you know, even through my mask, a few people were like, ah, oh, gonna blow James, you know? And the, the only question people would ask was, so what's going to happen? And I've got to be honest, Andrew, I didn't know what to tell them. Because 
I loved what I saw from the Arsenal fans, but I'm also a realist, you know, and I know, I know, that, I know how difficult and maybe improbable change might feel. But you don't want to tell people that in the middle of the, you know, a sort of day of jolly protesting. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and you want to be wrong as well. But, uh, yeah, it's really hard to, you know, come back to your original question, where, what will it lead to? What sort of reaction mm. will we get from the owners? I suspect we will get things like Josh turning up at a fans meeting and, you know, when he's allowed to travel and everyone's allowed to travel, more in-person engagement at that kind of event. You know, maybe uh, we'll see a few. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, pre-pandemic, he was at a lot of games. He'll probably be at a lot of games again. But what does that really mean? I mean, what does that really count for? Like, we, I know well, fans want it. It's a token, though, isn't it? Well, it is and it isn't. It is and it isn't. Because I, I, I think the one thing that you could, without any hesitation accuse KSE of since they took mm. over. Like, you know, there has been money to spend. Money has been spent. I know it's the club's money and everything else, but money has been spent on players, on contracts. We spent a lot of money on transfers, yeah. I think. And last few windows. And we, on we spend money. And renewing big contracts for big players. <laughs> you know, we we put the too the, much, some would say. Right. But what I would what I would say their biggest issue has been regardless of their inability to connect. And, like, yeah. uh, I, I don't know that it's it's necessarily possible for, for Stan Kroenke to connect with Arsenal fans. Died in the wall, no. old-school, old-fashioned Arsenal fans. Like, he's got no concept of who they are. And, you know, his life is so far removed from all of ours. You know, we know he's a billionaire, but, like, yeah, it's just completely different. But... The point I'm making is that I think the big criticism since their inception or since their arrival has been, or since they had some uh, control and influence, I should say, mm. has been absenteeism. Mm. The sense that the owner is disconnected from the club. Mm -hmm. And, like, I didn't expect Stan Kroenke to do a John W. Henry video I'm sorry. No, he's not. <laughs> no, I'm actually. I'll say this. I'm glad he didn't. I don't. Oh, I'm know glad he I... didn't either. I don't. I don't want to hear that because I know it's no. absolute bullshit. Exactly. But I, I suppose the difference is, is that uh, Henry's apology, as mealy mouthed and all the rest of it as it was, came from a guy who had been present for pretty much the entire time. Uh, you know. That, that they've been there at Liverpool. He has been a figurehead. Stan has been over there and has let people run the club for him. And that's the way he works and everything else. Um, the, the issue, of course, is who he allows to run the club and what they can do or what they do or how they do it, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it was just another step backwards towards that sense of, of absenteeism. And Josh being at games... Um, maybe it's a token, but maybe if you're around, you learn stuff, you find out what's happening, you mm -hmm. know, who's good, you know, what people are talking about, you know, like, you know, whatever you relationship you have with somebody over WhatsApp or FaceTime is completely different when it's face to face. 
Yeah, of course. You know? So I do think there is a need for the people who are in charge of the the ultimate decisions being taken at your football club to be there, to 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 understand. You know, we know they they don't come from a football background. They come from a sports franchise background, and that's part of why they wanted to be involved in a Super League, because I think that would have just made life easier for them, because they wouldn't have to learn anything. They don't have to learn how football works or how fandom works or what's expected or or all of those things, because if you just get into this, uh, and I, I'm going to use the word Americanized, and I don't mean it pejoratively. I just mean that that, that is what they're used to, and that's what mm-hmm. this Super League idea was, that that makes life really easy for for them because they don't have to worry about the nuts and bolts of football or competitiveness or making a team that works. So I think, again, you know, I'm not hopeful, um, but if, and I know the pandemic has played some part in this as well, right? Because, you know, travel is some part, but it's not, yeah, it's not. We're all on zoom, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, that explains why Josh isn't at games. It doesn't explain why, as he said in the meeting the other day, he hasn't been able to engage with fans. That's not uh, valid. Yeah, even that, though. You know, I'm... I I wonder about that, you know, in, in... Because I think we... We look for engagement from the owners, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with looking for it either. And I know one of the things that came up um, during the fans' forum was uh, fan representation on the board. Yeah. Right? There's a reason why that is something that we're looking for. And it's because, A, there is a lack of understanding from the people who own the club. So we, as fans, feel like, well, we could fill that gap because we know, even though, like, you could put 20 Arsenal fans in a room and in five minutes they'll be arguing about something, you know what I mean? Sure. They'll find something to argue about. But, you know, I think that's that's part of it, is this sense that if they don't know what it is, we we do. Fundamentally, we know, so we could we could be that. But the second most important point is that we just don't have good enough people on the board in the first place. So I don't mm-hmm. necessarily want, um, and I'm, this isn't to shoot down the idea, um, but I don't necessarily want fan involvement on the board or fan representation on the board. I want the best people that we can get to run this football club on the board. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So it's yeah. it's it's like but, but what's interesting is and that this is one of the most interesting things about the protest. I think there was clear consensus on Cronky out, but I don't think there is necessarily consensus among the Arsenal fans about what exactly we want. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, there yeah. are a lot of people who would say to you, "Well, we do want fan representation on the board." That, oh that's no, no, the no, sure, sure. I like, but uh, my, all I'm saying is is that if, if we had highly skilled football executives on the board, <clears throat> this football club would probably be in a better position. Um, and the 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 need or this thing that we feel we need, like if we were winning trophies, nobody would care if there was a fan on the board or not. And ultimately, that, well, that's, that's very what it comes true. down to. Is that's that, very true. Like, with the best will in the world, 
the, the, the biggest Arsenal fan in the world could be on the board, it's not going to make any real difference because there's no, there's no influence there. They might be somebody who, who can provide some background or some color or, or say, well, look, if you do this, this is the way fans are going to react. And, and I'm not saying that that's not, um, that, that couldn't be useful. But the reality is we want this because this club is in, well, it's going backwards. We all felt like we needed to maybe take a step backwards before we went forwards again, but we're going a bit too far backwards. So we're in a we're panicking in a way because we can see that the trajectory is is the wrong trajectory. So how can we fix it? We want to be involved, but I would, you know, I think ultimately it boils down to having the best people available, and that's like at board level and picking the team and you know being technical director and all of those kinds of things. Yeah. I, I think there are two sides to, to it all, really. There's there's the politics and there's the performance, mm. you know, and I think different fans, there's kind of a scale between those of, uh, of sort of where you sit uh, in terms of what it is that you want from change. Mm. I think, you know, I, I think probably the majority are much more led by performance. If Arsenal start winning things, mm. that will appease them mm. uh, I think there are other fans for whom this is much more about the politi- political side fan representation you know ownership structures oh yeah now maybe there is a, a correlation between those two things maybe one would uh, you know maybe fan involvement would lead to more success um, I don't know I like, don't know yeah, don't, don't I don't want to be um make it sound like I'm dismissive of the idea of fan involvement or anything like that. I mean, I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk, hasn't there, of the 50 plus one um, yeah. model that they have in Germany. And I think, you know, football, particularly in, in England, uh, opened the door to allow people in. So situations like this, at football clubs are going to happen. You know? How do you explain to someone who spent, you know, whatever it is that the Cronky Spencer acquired Arsenal, actually, you now don't have majority voting Well, I, d- I just don't know how... I don't know how that's possible, you know, uh, in any... Like, how... Is it even legally possible to say to somebody, we are completely changing the landscape of... Well, like, this is basically company ownership. That's yeah. what it is. Is like, we can talk about it um, applying to football or whatever, but, you know, these are basically companies is company law so um and i love that model by the way listen if, if someone yeah. said you can click your fingers and you know suddenly 50 percent plus one votes on all major issues belong to the fans effectively fantastic wow what an incredible thing to have and credit to german football for preserving it in as far as they have done this far i don't see that at all mm. being feasible in the premier league no. I, again I don't wish to sound cynical. I just don't know how the hell that would work. Well, I mean, before we take a break for part two, you know, um, Barcelona as a football club <laughs> elects its president. You know, mm-hmm. it's the socios that, that, that make the decisions about who's in charge. And they're currently a billion euros in debt. So fan, <laughs> fan involvement isn't always... Now, I know that's down to, you know, what's gone on there, but... It's not but, but like listen, a panacea for for everything that's wrong either, you know? No, and I know, listen, I know we're overdue a break, but, you know, the conversation's sort of flowed. So what I would say is they're not engaged enough, the Conkeys, but then is that not absolutely inevitable when 
they're not Arsenal aren't your sole, sole focus. Arguably not even the jewel in the crown, you know. I mm. mean, the Rams are a huge focus for them. Running a football club, owning a football club is such a consuming, huge project from a business perspective, from a passion perspective. Mm. If you are like an umbrella company that owns half a dozen teams, it's absolutely inevitable, mm. is it not, that you're not going to dedicate as much focus to one as... Mm. As we would like. Well, I mean, and look, here's the other thing. The final thing that I'll say on this before we go and and take a break is that, you know, as fans, I think we're right to be distrustful of of Kroenke or indeed maybe any other owner that comes in or would have come in because when it boils right down to it, football and profit from football clubs is – a pittance. If you make a profit, it's just it's measly in comparison to what you're making uh, as a billionaire from your other investments, right? Yeah. It's tiny. So where do you extract the value? And it is by manipulating the game and maneuvering to make something like the Super League happen. So, so the asset the value of your investment, yeah. Incre- so you know we, the, the motives for their involvement ultimately are completely flawed for me, unless you have the passion for the football club. Like if it's an Arsenal supporting billionaire that comes along and and all he wants, like you or I or anyone listening to this, if we had a you know uh, five billion pounds tomorrow, you buy Arsenal and you do everything you could to make it the best thing in the world that it could be, right? But why would you do that if you're Stan Kroenke or someone who just wanted to own a football club for whatever reason? And I just um, I just don't believe there are men, there are some, but I don't believe there are many people who end mm. up with £5 billion who make habits of giving it all away. Well, I would, I if I had £5 billion tomorrow, James... I would I would spend some fucking money on this football team. I promise you that. I well, give the people what they want. Billion? Well, I give what does Stan want to, to buy it? Two billion? There you go. Still got three billion. Stick a you know, five hundred million into the transfer budget in the first season. That should yeah. that should, you know, get us a few de- uh, decent players. And you'll be all right with just that just the two, two and, and a half billion, billion that you're left. Yeah. Uh, I what can I say? You're just a selfless guy, I guess. I know. A man know. of the people. Andrew let's, in. Let's have Cronky out. Andrew in. Just need the five billion. Let's draw an arbitrary <laughs> VAR-like line in this podcast at this point. No one knows why it's happening now. No one's sure if it's exact. We'll just do it now and then move into part two. Let's do it. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to part two of the Arscast Extra. This is where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at ArsBlog and also on the ArsBlog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an ArsBlog member on Patreon. I'm going to go first, James, returning to yeah. something that we uh, discussed in part one. A couple of them here. Uh, Ash Richards 90 from the Discord says, is it time to give Matt Ryan a go in goal? It's obvious Leno has issues with concentration. Literally had nothing to do on Friday and then that happened. And Saul Goodman LMK says, evening gents. Leno's blunder the other evening was awful. He's been very inconsistent and doesn't instill much confidence in me even when he's on form. Is it time to seriously consider Matt Ryan for the moment and maybe look into the market in the summer, especially with the comments Leno made only a couple of weeks ago? Hmm. It's a really big decision, I think. Mm. You know, you've got a player who is in bad form. And if it was an outfield player, I think you would drop him. Yeah. But for some reason with a goalkeeper... Maybe as well because Matt Ryan, while he's a very credible international goalkeeper, maybe he sort of he was never the plan, shall we say? Maybe he's not got the, you know, had we bought David Raya last summer and he was sat there on the bench and the goalie coach loves him and Arteta thinks he's perfect fit for the style and all that stuff, you know, it's an easier decision than mm. l- putting in the guy we loaned from Brighton because he wasn't playing. You know, there's a it's a more it feels like more of a gamble but of course sticking with Leno is a gamble given the run that he's on I personally would go Leno I just think I I, and you know what I don't know enough about Matt Ryan to, to make that call I think that's at the heart of it for me like I I would be tempted but you know I think if you make that decision on Leno now, you're basically ending his season. You're saying that right from now on, Matt Ryan is the goalkeeper. So Matt Ryan is going to play. If you know, if you pick him on Thursday, going to got to play him in the Premier League as well. I think, you know, because goalkeepers, you don't want to be in and out with goalkeepers. Um, you want to, you know, let him build some form. I guess if you're going to continue to 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 do what you need to do in in the Europa League. So you if you drop Leno for this you're saying right that's season over. Mm-hmm. Um and and like you I I don't know quite enough about Matt Ryan. I think he's been okay in the games the two games you've seen him. Um he's obviously experienced. I it is a difficult one though because you're right if Leno was an outfield player right now he would be he wouldn't be playing. 
he wouldn't be playing yeah. in, in, in this kind of form. Goalkeeper is a different position, though. It is a special position as well. So it's not quite the same thing. Um, uh, yeah. No, it's it's different with good reasons. Yeah, I understand why it's not the mm. same. Um, and you don't, you know, rotate your goalkeepers and stuff. But, but yeah, I sort of come back to what I say in part one here. I think sort of we're in a slightly awkward position of, you know, the num- the number two that we have. And again, I don't mean to be harsh on Matt Ryan. I-, I-, I liked him when he was at Brighton and I think he's done well in the games that he's played, but it it still feels like a gamble of sorts. I mean, has he been tested at this level? Has he played a European semi-final? Mm. You know, I don't know. Yeah, like it's a headache he could have done without, to be fair. You know, considering the other headaches that he has to contend with, with Tierney, with Louise out, with, um, you know, question marks over the strikers. Uh, I think he'll definitely go Leno, by the way. I mean, I think he will as well. There's a debate, but knowing what we do with Arteta, I think he's going Leno. What do you think of the Leno situation overall? Because. Look, we're all like comments, weren't there? The yeah, other day. we were all brilliant at reading between the lines, and we're all brilliant at jumping to a conclusion about something, and then, like a few days later, it turns out to be completely wrong. Uh, but you know, but that's what we do as football fans, and it's it's part of the part of the How's enjoyment we do a podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, but but do do you have any doubts or worries or concerns about Leno's? Uh, what's going to happen with him? Because it feels like we've got a lot to do in the summer. I think everyone says that. And I'm not sure too many people would have said goalkeeper is right near the top of the list of things that we have to do. However, the comments weren't exactly, I love it here, I want to stay, I want to commit my future to this club, I believe we're going places, etc., etc. It wasn't that. He basically said, I'm open to anything. Like, I'll stay or I'll go. You know, that's, there's, yeah, you can read a lot into that. And I don't know if you've heard anything about this, but there have been some suggestions that maybe the goalkeeping coach and Leno aren't quite on the same wavelength uh, as well. So Mm. what's your reading on his situation and what might happen in the summer? Well, he's at a crucial point, isn't he? Because he's two years out and Arsenal have to make him an offer to stay really, if they want to keep him, I think. Um, and maybe he's doing a bit of positioning. I don't know that mm. for sure, but maybe there's a degree to which he's saying, well, you know, my future is an open book. Let's see what you're prepared to put down in the contract. Um, it is an interesting one. I also feel like, is any is any player super committed to play for Arsenal right now? I mean, you know, looking at where we are in the league and sort of, how far away we are from where we want to be. Mm. I'm not absolving any of these players of their part in it, but I suspect that there's quite a few of them who think, well, if a Champions League club wanted to come in for me, yeah, I'd be out of here like a shot. Not sure there's that many players at Champions League no. clubs will be sniffing around. Or, but you know, I wonder if Leno might be one. That, I, I, I wonder if he might be one. You know, If he has enough stock in, in Germany or elsewhere, that he, he might be one. He is Other what the second or third choice goalkeeper for Germany. Is he yeah. third? Yeah, he might not be a kind of you know mm. might not quite be a, an Edison or you know an Alisson, but it, it, I think he's held in high regard internationally. So 
that might be in his thoughts. And he's probably thinking, if I want to have any chance of being Germany's number one, I need to be in the top European competition. I know people who don't like Leno will be saying, well, we'd stand a better chance if he didn't make all these errors. And that's absolutely right. Mm. But I just am speaking from his perspective, if he might think he's got a bit of leverage there. Um, mm. I don't know what's going to happen with it. You know, we, that we needed to buy a goalkeeper last summer. We didn't manage it. Um, we've got Matt Ryan in. He's done nothing wrong, really, so far. Beautiful pre-assist the other day. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think anyone's operating under any illusions that he's going to be the number one no. at any point. No. So it's a position that needs a bit of a shake-up. Yeah. And and as for the goalie coach, I mean, after... Sounds harsh to call it the Runison debacle, but I mean, it, it kind of was. Where is a he? A little bit. Where is Runison? So someone took him out to the woods near London Colney. Just left him there, tied to a tree. <laughs> this poor little Icelandic guy. So cold. I mean, it was weird because we were even trying to get him out on loan. We couldn't manage that mm. in January. So, yeah, I don't know if we're ever going to see that guy again. But, yeah, given that, I mean, I wouldn't be giving him free reign to pick whoever he wants in the summer. Mm, no. It, it, it's, it, it is an interesting one, Leno. I mean, personally, I'm one of the people who rates him slightly more highly than others. I probably would give him a new deal. I don't think he's our biggest problem. But, if he is well regarded and you could sell him and get someone for cheaper and it enabled you to strengthen other areas of the pitch, I could live with that as well. Yeah, and look, the, the Emmy Martinez thing keeps coming up as well. Um, I suppose yeah. the, the the bottom line there is... Ship sail? Yeah, but yeah, ship sail. But it wasn't like it wasn't like we had to decide which goalkeeper we wanted to sell because nobody... Nobody was bidding for Leno, as far as we know. No. Martinez was, was an, kind of available. I, I was chatting to an agent about this the other day, and I was sort of saying, you know, oh, they sold Martinez as well. And the agent made the point to me, Arsenal got a really, at the time, a really good deal for Emmy Martinez. Like, for a guy who'd been a number two or sometimes mostly number three goalkeeper until the age of, like, 28, and then had a couple of good months to get... 20 million quid, which is sort of the total of what they got, including add-ons. Mm. It was very difficult to turn that down if you had yeah, another yeah. goalkeeper who could play. So he's had a really good season with Aston Villa and it makes you sort of think, ooh, did we do the right thing? But it was a good offer and a good fee. It's yeah. not one of those situations where, like, we let his contract run down and we lost him for nothing. Do you know what I mean? Mm. For sure. Um, and, I, and maybe we didn't foresee Leno having the run of poor form he's having. I mean, he's definitely struggling at the moment. So so to conclude, I would stick with him uh, with some fear in my heart. Yeah. What about you? I, I think that's what will happen. He'll stick with Leno. I mean, what was, I suppose, most worrying about the... We talked about this a few weeks ago in in terms of how many minutes he's played this season. Like, he's up there with maybe more than anyone um, but he in, got in terms rest, of minutes. Right? But he got a rest for the Fulham game. And I think it was in part, it wasn't necessarily a physical rest that he needed. I think it was just A, okay, look, we do have another goalkeeper at this club. And, you know, be aware that he could play. And it was to try and just give him a, a, a little rest to refocus him and everything else. And then that error happens after that, where you expect him to be uh, 
uh, super focused. And he wasn't. You know, it was a lack of focus. He has played more minutes than any other player this season, you know. So while it's not the most physically exhausting, it, it is a um, mentally uh, draining to, to play those minutes. So you, sometimes you need to be taken out of the firing line. And yeah, that was that was the worrying part. But anyway, we'll see. I think it will Listen, be Leno on, on Thursday. German goalkeeper away to Villarreal. What could go wrong? You know, there's good precedent there. Yes, yes. Um, what about this question? Uh, Sam, who is on Twitter, he's at Mighty Mongoose 7, which feels like a cartoon that needs to be made, Mighty Mongoose. <laughs> Arteta has, for me, always had until December to get us playing better. Don't always pick that. I guess it's... I guess because it's... No, I would imagine that it is a, uh, in inverted commas, normal off-season, ah. transfer window, pre-se- proper pre-season, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get to December. So season starts in August. You've got August, September, October, November, December. So you've got five months to assess the work he's done in what would be considered, generally speaking, normal circumstances. So that's my take okay. on, on that. Yeah. But, Sam says, Uh-oh. if we get knocked out by Unai and lose the majority of our remaining Premier League fixtures, could you see a change being made in the summer? Especially, he adds, with all the pressure on the club. Yeah. I, I we t- spoke about this on text, didn't we? About yeah. Could the pressure on the club make Arteta more vulnerable? Yes. That's what we were talking about. I think that is true. It's, you know, if you're if one of the criticisms of the ownership has been their reactiveness or lack of, you know, hands-on or, or not being proactive enough, if your manager leads you to a record season of losses in the Premier League, a record low in points, a record low in goals scored and all that kind of stuff, and you fail to get the team into Europe, if you fail to get beyond, you know, (laughs) a team managed by the manager they previously sacked, like, I, I do think that that leaves him much more vulnerable than he would have been if all this hadn't happened. Like, if the Super League stuff hadn't happened, if the Cronky protest hadn't happened, I would have said with almost near certainty that whatever happened between now and the end of the season, whether people agree with it or not, I'm not saying that's um, that's the issue. It's I, what I think the club would have done would be to continue to back Arteta, and to do the business that he wanted to do or as much of the business that he wanted to do in the summer to get the team that he wants to get, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that because of everything that's gone on, he is, yeah, his position is much less secure. He's on more shaky ground, I think. I think so. Like, you're absolutely right. Their plan was always, or has been for some time, Let's give Arteta and Edu absolute authority and control and trust. But if you're in a situation where one of the things your ownership is being criticised for is maybe a lack of alacrity in how you respond to situations, Mm. being slow off the mark, maybe being too accepting of mediocrity, it's perhaps inevitable that you will 
<laughs> seek to kind of provide an antidote by to that through action. And the most uh, dramatic, transformative action an owner can have on the fortunes of a football team is to change the manager. Um, I, I do think it puts him on slightly shakier ground. I mean, the ground is shaky anyway, considering the the record. And like, I'm. Um, if he goes what, what out, was, what was the name of, of the what was the name of the 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 guy who asked the question? Mighty mongoose. Mighty mongoose. <laughs> Sam. <laughs> Sam. <laughs> but I prefer if we could refer to him as Mighty Mongoose. He will forever now be Sam the Mighty Mongoose. Yeah. I I was sort of inclined to take his position in that I, I you know... Give him till Christmas. Yeah. Then sack him. Well... Merry Christmas, no Mikhail. Well, look, if, if nothing improves, because I do recognise that, you know, that there have been issues and external issues for him to deal with Arteta I mean that have Apparently been there was a pandemic someone mentioned a pandemic yeah look I'm like not that. even talking I'm not even necessarily talking about that even though that is huge I don't think you can escape it but it's been the same for everyone everyone yeah. has had to deal with the pandemic not every club has had to deal with the departure of a legacy manager a complete restructuring of the 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 executive Mm-hmm. The firing of another manager, Twice. a head coach, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, an executive structure that fell apart where, you know, there were question marks about what we were doing and how we were doing it. Um, a lot of long-standing internal problems with the squad and, and everything else that have had to have been sorted out. We saw some of that happen in January with players being paid to literally just fuck off. You know, mm-hmm. I, I do think there is an element of, of, you know, Arsenal are not the same as every club. The circumstances, everyone's had to deal with COVID. Not everyone has had to deal with the departure of Wenger, the hiring of Emery, the leaving of Gazidis, the leaving of Mislintat, the, you know, Sanyehi, the, the malign influence of, of super agents on some of the business that we've been doing, poor squad building, all of those things. So the, the one thing that sort of gave me hope and optimism and, you know, put me very... Uh, much on Arteta's side was and remains to an extent his acknowledgement of the problems that we have mm-hmm. that needed to be sorted out right I I, you know I, I don't think anyone can really argue with that the, the problem is is that you have to sort out all those things and produce results and I do wonder if The big mistake, not the big mistake, but if it was a mistake to make Mikel Arteta manager rather than leave him as head coach and bring in, we should have brought in maybe somebody with more football experience or executive experience or technical director experience or sporting director experience, etc., etc., to, to actively take charge of some of the things that Arteta himself appears to have been, I'm not going to say distracted by, but has had to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe that's, that's what we should have done. Ultimately, though, you cannot ignore the results. And no manager, no Arsenal manager, who loses as many games as we've lost, even with bad luck or whatever way you want to put it, and who 
you know, obviously I hope this doesn't happen. I hope, you know, our season ends with, with huge success. And if it does, it changes the landscape completely. But if you lose that many games and play that poorly for most of the season and crash out of Europe, no, even Mikel Arteta himself, I'm sure, would tell you it's normal that his job would be under threat. I think so. I think, you know, we've all seen Cronky uh, out trending this week. I think if Arsenal go out to Villarreal, I think there'll be a, another Arsenal-related hashtag trending. And and, and mm. I think it's that pivotal for him. I do think that it's the kind of tie that if he loses it, the optics of losing to his predecessor, who was deemed not mm. good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That wouldn't be pretty. And I think it's the kind of result that you'll never quite unshackle yourself from. You know, I think it will be a line in the sand for some people. Yeah. And I... And I Take no pleasure in saying that. You know, I think he's, like you, I think he's been dealt a difficult hand. I think think his heart is in the right place. You know, when it comes to the job and what he wants to do and how he wants to do it and what what he expects from the club and what he wants, what he, the standards that he feels we should have. He's demanding of himself, of his players and of the club. He's not one of those people who, you know, one of the issues with Emery is that he kind of sought to explain away every performance you know anything that went wrong Mm. uh, there was a lot of equivocating about it Um, but Arteta he says the right things (laughs) but you know again actions versus words is another matter I I do think if he doesn't make it past this stage of the competition he's going to come under fire from supporters. Mm. I actually think if he goes out the competition at any stage, he's going to come under fire because eventually there's going to be this moment where we realise that all the ejector seats, all the parachutes, you know, have gone. Mm -hmm. And we're out of last chances to save our season. Yeah, yeah. And we just crash into mid-table. And... I do think, as I alluded to in part one, there's a kind of a collective capability. It's our nature as fans to sort of put that off as long as there is that possibility of escape. And when that goes away, even if it is the final day of the season, Mm. look at Unai Emery. Look at, I mean, you know, I think there was the similar effect of people were flabbergasted at how we threw away the position in the league but he always had the get out of jail card of potentially the Europa League final and then when he lost that and granted it was in a particular fashion stuff absolutely tumbled on top of him Mm. and he never recovered And, and, and I fear for Arteta in that respect I mean I fear he may need to win this competition which is a tall order tall order rather Mm. with the way we're playing it is Okay, go on. Here's a question from Ivan Colon, who's at Ivan M. Colon 11. And he says, Do you think it's time to end the experiment of Xhaka at left back? I feel that we are lacking control in midfield, and lately, Party has been imprecise with his passing. Xhaka could help bring more precision out of our central midfielders. Hmm. I. I've been thinking about this one. I mean, Villarreal play on their right midfield. Uh, a young chap by the name of Samuel Chukwueze, 
Nearly we, signed him. Nearly, we tried very hard. I believe yeah. the work permit issues. Um, 21 years old. Quick, strong, skillful. Tricky. Mm. A tricky player for any left-back to handle. For Granit Xhaka, maybe very tricky. Um especially if he wants to drive in field. I mean, that's, you know, Shaka doesn't want to be doing that. But I think... I have the concerns. I understand the reasons for the question. I think I would still stick with him. Mm. I heard Clive on on Arsenal Vision mount a pretty cogent case for sort of maybe putting Gabriel in that position. And I, I do wonder about that. Like... I feel like he could do it, but um, he could do it in the way that Shaka does it. Yeah, that's what I mean. But he couldn't Tuck do in. it in the traditional fullback sense, I guess. No, and I suppose it's not something like if that was the confines of that particular um, deployment of Gabriel. Like you're you're not asking Gabriel to be Kieran Tierney. You're asking Gabriel to do what Shaka does at the moment. And yeah. the, the, the thing that we would have then is Shaka back in midfield, which gives you less Danny Ceballos, which is something that I'm okay with. He, but he's uh, doing okay, isn't uh, he, Ceballos? Yeah. I just find him so underwhelming. I guess the question is, is he more underwhelming? Like, but then it's between he's Ceballos being, and Cedric, isn't it? Yeah, or, but, or Gabriel. Yeah, he's being asked to do a specific role, I suppose, as well. When Jacket is at left back, mm-hmm. um, mm. my short answer is: I think I would have to stick with Shaka. I think that that is the option that has worked for us mm. best thus far. What would you do? Like I don't really like Cedric. There, I would be less inclined than Clive to use Gabriel there. What about Alex Runnison? <laughs> He's lost. He's not up to anything else, as far as we know. Lost. Get Can't down the woods. Can't find him. He's gone. Send Albert Stevenberg just... out to the woods with there's, a torch just to look a for a Alex Runnison. A piece of rope. <laughs> there's just some goalie gloves. <laughs> um, some torn up goalie gloves. I yeah I look. Lock of I I. I, <laughs> I Here's what I think about stuff like Xhaka at left back. <laughs> I think it, you can do it for a few games. Yeah. And then the limitations of it become really obvious. Do you think we've reached that point? I'm I feel like we've reached that point. Mm. But then the option is Cedric. And I'm unconvinced by that as well. So it's... It's a difficult one for for Mikel Arteta. What about this uh, from the Discord, which is slightly on the same thing. It comes from uh, Vasisht, who says, should we play Emil Smith-Rowe deeper in the Ceballos role? So what if you were to play Shaka left-back and play Emil Smith-Rowe deeper in the midfield to do that linking on the left-hand side with whoever plays out there? I think you could do that. I think you could do it. I, I call me crazy. Okay. I think Sabas has been all right in this role. I think he's played some of his better 
football for us in the last few games. Mm-hmm. He's been a bit more consistent. I, I'm not in a hurry to sort of swap in the kind of untested pro- possibility of Smith Rowe in a deeper role um, for Ceballos right now at such a crucial point in the season. But I do think going forward, something we've seen a few times this season has kind of been Partey at the base of midfield with Smith Rowe and Odegaard either side of him. I would like to see more of that. Mm. And if we had a left back, I might be making the case for that. Yeah. What, what do you think? I'm trying to think, like, would Smith Rowe be able to do everything Sabios does in that role? And I think he would. Would he give you something a little different in terms of how he moves and how quickly he could circulate the ball? I think he could. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's his ideal position, but I think the talent I mean, is there in him to do that specific job. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about it and I was thinking maybe Smith Rowe might be squeezed out of the starting eleven on Thursday. I just wonder if Odegaard will play in the central role. Mm. I think if you do have Shaka at left back, it really helps to have a left footer like Pepe in front of him. And then Bukayo Saka on the right-hand side. So, you know, mm. you might be looking for somewhere to put Smith Rowe in. The left could play ahead of Pepe. wouldn't surprise me at all. It wouldn't surprise me, but mm. I do think there's a value in having... Pepe in front of Shaka. Here's another one from the Discord then. Go on. From Maber, who says, Do you think Partey has been getting off lightly? Consistently poor on the ball for a while now, misplaces so many simple passes and takes nonsense nonsense shots. He's been a big disappointment for me, he says. I think that's a bit harsh. I agree. I think, I agree. I think Thomas Partey has an exceptionally difficult role in this team of kind of like you are the midfield um, he made more ball recoveries I think than any other player and, and it's off against Everton and it's often the case I think there are moments when his passing and shooting can look a little bit raw at times but I don't mind that because invariably he's trying to make something happen and I respect that in him. All that said, if I think about it as a signing more generally, um, I how can I phrase this? When we bought Thomas Partey, it felt like here's a really premium player and we probably got four years out of him. And when I look at what we've got out of him th- this year factoring in the injuries and what he's had around him. Mm. It feels like a bit of a wasted year of our time with him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the signing has quite worked out as well as everyone would have hoped. I think that's fair. I think the the question, I think some of his passing has been excellent. I think there have been moments where he, he's been Great sloppy. And, you know, the other yeah, day. exactly. You know, and I think he does have the ability to progress the ball through midfield that, you know, we don't necessarily get from a Ceballos. You certainly don't get it from an El Nenny. Um, the shooting, look, that's going to be a thing until he puts one top corner. Um, I, listen, I'll, t- I'll say this. 
I don't think he'd be doing it if Mikel Arteta didn't want him to do it because there are some great stats around. When Granit Xhaka, when Arteta came in, Granit Xhaka started taking on a lot less shots mm. and it was pretty instant. And Partey continues to take shots on from range and I can only think that the coaching staff are content for him to do so. Yeah, he's obviously much better at um, kicking a football in training than he is <laughs> on a football pitch. What yeah. I would say, though, is this, is that at this point of our season, he would go a long, long way to repaying a significant part of that transfer fee if he were to produce two or three big performances in the Europa League akin to the one at Old Trafford. Well, who was his best performance of the season against yeah, Manchester United? it was. And I, look, I think that's... I'm not saying that he should be the one to absolutely stand up and, and carry the team and, and all that. But I do think we need him to to produce some performances in, in the next few weeks which are above the level that he's at at the moment. Yeah, I mean... He's got his critics, but what I would say to his critics is, how do you feel if he's injured? Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'd Suddenly rather... Suddenly then. <laughs> yeah. I rather want him out in the team. Yeah, I want him in the team, but I do also think... I understand why people are kind of disappointed with him, if they are. You know, I understand it. Yeah, we haven't... You know, he's had his injury problems. I think he's struggled for rhythm. I think... The team is poor, collectively. The team is poor, Yeah. I mean, we've put a good player in a poor team and it hasn't... Mm. There have been games where it's been transformative, but there have been other games where that's not been enough. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, it's, a, it's come back to the ownership. I'd be fascinated to know what they think, you know. Yeah, yeah. Go and get this player. He's going to make a big difference. I, I, I bet they're scratching their heads. But the thing is, there have been times where you can see what a good player he is. I think, you know, anyone who's watched him can see how different he is to our other midfield players. I just think, I actually think the injuries and maybe the physical side has been the biggest mm. adaptation. And it's weird, you know, he's played in Spanish football his whole career. He's basically been in Spanish football since his mid-teens. But maybe because he's a, a Ghanaian international we didn't treat him the same way as we might an, another midfielder coming out of La Liga. You know, maybe we sort of expected him to immediately be at Premier League intensity and physicality. Mm. But maybe that's not fair. This is a guy who's always played in Spain and the Premier League is different. And maybe we we paid a bit for that adaptation. Mm. I don't know. Okay. Uh, but listen, I'm glad he's not injured at the moment. Um, what about this? Jakob Romaborn. And Jakob says, how credible do you think the reports are of Daniel Ek, or previously Aliko Dangote, really wanting to buy Arsenal? I mean, maybe they want to, but can they? Because yeah, like a move from Daniel Ek, wasn't it? It's just sort of come out with that. Um, was, kind of. Um, yeah, maybe there's something more to it does somebody just put something like that on twitter for the laugh does he I mean, just all, does it just occur to him like oh hey you know what 
I've got a lot of wealth. Maybe you know what? I yeah, I'd like to buy Arsenal. I'll just tweet about it. Just see, float the idea, fly that kite, and see. I enjoyed a lot of people have just tweeted out the same thing. Do you know what I mean? Word for word, the same tweet. I'd like to throw my hat into the ring, Um, (laughs) which is quite funny. But yeah, I immediately, like everybody else, googled what he's worth: four point four billion US dollars. Yeah, but that's who he's worth. Is that what he has, though? Exactly. Is that what he has? And also tied up in. He's gonna, as we've proved in part one, he's gonna need two point five billion of that at least. You know. Liquid. To live on. Liquid. Um, but maybe that's what you get. Maybe you do have more cash than people think when you pay artists point zero 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 one p per stream for their music. Yeah, a few musicians uh, I saw kicking off about that. Yeah. Arsenal are apparently worth $2.8 billion, according to Forbes. So what's that in the old... Uh, hang on, let me, have a, let me have a quick check here on the... Uh, the money markets, the old XE.com. So two point two point eight dollars in, in GBP or Euros for you guys, whatever you want. I'll do it in pants. Do it in the old punt. Yeah. <laughs> the old punt. So just but just over two billion pounds. Just over. So mm. I I like may I can't speak to what Daniel Eck actually wants or um, what Tangote actually wants. Maybe they do want to buy Arsenal. The problem is is that uh, Kroenke has to want to sell. Does he well, want to sell? I don't think so. I don't no, and in believe fairness, so. That was the second part of the question, which yeah. I didn't actually ask, but you know, would he consider selling? David Ornstein, I think, um, was on some TV thing today, I just saw a Twitter post like, and you know, they, they, they just, (laughs) they just don't want to sell. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. They never have really sold anything. Um, I doubt they're about to break the habit of a lifetime. As for Daniel, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about that is that, you know, you immediately encounter the sort of barrier of, oh, is, is his business ethical? And it raises that question. I think somebody asked this on Twitter. Um, I can't find like it what, right now. What's- oh, Ars- uh, yeah, Arsendal says, what does the ideal billionaire owner look like? Uh, me, um, me, me. But I'm not a <laughs> it's bi- Andrew. It's yeah. Andrew, man. I'm not a billionaire. Five billion. But... It, you know, it isn't. It's tricky, isn't it? Because you know, you're right. But we probably, if he arrived like a white knight to buy Arsenal and promise to spend money on the team and win things, we'd probably all lap it up. So it, it's just one of those kind of impossible things, no? Yeah, I mean, it's like if you know, if fucking Godzilla came in tomorrow to take over Newcastle, their fans would be like, "Fucking brilliant! This is great. We hate Mike Ashley." This fucking Godzilla lad, he looks great. And then they bring Godzilla in and all of a sudden he's fucking rampaging around downtown Newcastle, breathing fire out of his nose, burning up the Angel of the North, and fucking, it's mayhem. Yeah. But you're willing to overlook all the, the destruction and the fire breathing and the trampling and the rampaging and the everything else because he's not Mike Ashley. So, it, yeah, to the wider point, though, um, it is difficult when you get into the kind of financial range 
that these people are in to to come across the nicest people, you know? There's only so many people who can buy Arsenal, who could afford it, mm. you know? And most of them have probably done things to piss people off to make that money. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting, you know, because, you know, the sort of dialectic, the big, the big sort of discourse over the past week has been about sport versus business. You know, that's kind of how it was all framed. Super League's about sporting ambition against sort of business mm. growth. And the teams that were last into the Super League and first out were Manchester City and Chelsea. Who don't now, need right. the money. Well, not they don't exactly. need it, but, you know, they can, they're not as dependent on it. Exactly. So, and, and what are the reason that those people bought those clubs? Well, to make them look good, essentially. Mm. For them to succeed and that to reflect well on the people who bought them. Mm. And they are not the reasons that Arsenal was bought. But, so so I'd say that if you're thinking about it from a purely sporting perspective, you probably do want to be bought by someone like, Abu Dhabi, uh, you know, Abu Dhabi or Roman Abramovich. But my instincts tell me that there would be, that Arsenal fans wouldn't be comfortable with that. A lot of Arsenal fans. Maybe that's changing, though. Maybe increasingly they would. Maybe they're maybe bizarrely the kind of sports washing thing ends up being a more kind of purer sporting pursuit because it's about the growth of the mm. reputation of that club. Do you know what I mean? It's really yeah. tricky. It is. It is, and it just makes you realise there's no good way out. Probably. No, I mean that is sort of probably the. You know, unless you get the kind of lightning bolt from above magically creates the kind of 50 plus one model, then I don't know what mm. your best bet is. I, I think the, the short answer is like, what does the ideal billionaire look like? Probably it's not one. Probably it's some sort of consortium, right? Probably it's faceless money with smart people at the front of it. Mm. You know, but... And smart people aren't that easy to find either. So no, well, that's yeah. what we've discovered. Right. Well, look on that um, upbeat note. I think we'll leave it there because we've been recording <laughs> for the best part of two hours now. So we really need to uh, to knock this one on the head, get it out, and get a good night's sleep and everything else. Um, we do have a massive game on Thursday, of course, in Spain over at Villarreal. We will preview that uh, during the week for Patreon members. Patreon.com forward slash blog. As ever, thank you very much indeed for being here. Really appreciate it as always. I hope you enjoyed the show and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.